You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the books of the Bible one book at a time. We are on our penultimate episode of the book of Jeremiah, which means next to last, Andrew. Yeah, and, uh, I didn't I'm, know that one. <laughs> I'm Drew Kaiser, and this is Andrew Kingsley. And uh, we have been, in Jeremiah, been enjoying it quite a bit. Yeah. And uh, we today we're going to come to the end of the storyline of the book of Jeremiah, but we're saving an episode for chapter 31, which we'll cover next week. So uh, get you know this is going to be the end. You'll read all there is to tell about how Jeremiah's life winds up, uh, what happens to the people that stayed in Jerusalem, uh, did not go into captivity, and a lot of other questions are answered. And uh, probably some more questions are going to be raised as we look at this. We're calling this episode Ears That Do Not Hear. And the first thing that you probably think of whenever you hear that phrase is what the Lord said before a lot of his parables or after telling some of his parables. He would say, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And uh, that certainly does apply to what we're talking about. But also, Jeremiah said this of his people in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21, if you can remember back that far. He said, they have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. So we're borrowing a phrase from Jeremiah here to describe these people. And in a few minutes, we're going to divide up the text, which is chapters 42 through 44, into two parts. The first part being itching ears and the second part being deaf ears. But before we do that, I need to set it up a little by reminding you where we left off last episode. The last episode, which ended with Jeremiah chapter 41, included the assassination of this guy, Gedaliah, who was governor of Judah, appointed by Nebuchadnezzar after the conquest and the capture of Zedekiah. Uh, Gedaliah was reigning or ruling. He wasn't a king. He was a governor. So we'll say ruling for about seven months until this guy, Ishmael, assassinates him and then runs off to Ammon because this was part of an Ammonite plot. Mm -hmm. Uh, The good guy, or the seemingly good guy, Johanan, who warned everybody that this was going to happen, now seems to take leadership. Uh, No one else seems to be ready to do that and moves everybody near Bethlehem in preparation to go to Egypt where they think safety lies, because they are afraid, and this is pretty logical thinking, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come now a fourth time into their city and wipe them out because they killed his appointed leader. And that's, you know, that's a pretty logical way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to chapter 42, and uh, Andrew's going to take the reading over right there and start uh, telling us what's, what's happening next. Yeah, you get into chapter 42, and you have that. What you just said is summed up in verses 17 and 18 and 41, um, and that's the end of chapter 41. So this flows nicely. So get a picture in your mind of the remaining people of Judah that are not in Babylon. Everybody that's left is all together at one place called Geruth Chimham, and they want to go to Egypt because they're afraid of the Babylonians for the reasons you just mentioned. And so here's what they do. Um, They bring a plea to God. And here's their plea in verses 2 and 3. 
Uh, They say to Jeremiah, Let our plea for mercy come before you. Pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. So they say, uh, pretty much the idea here is, we want to go to Egypt, can we go? Uh, It looks like they're being honest, but we're going to see later on that they're really not being honest. They look like they are, but they're not. Uh, so verses 1 through 6, we want to go to Egypt, can we go? Here's God's response 10 days later. Uh, I want to read verse 10. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and will not pluck you up, for I will relent from the disaster that I did to you. And let's skip verse 11 and read verse 12. I will grant you mercy that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your land. And we says he there, he's talking about the king of Babylon. Um, so basically he says, if you stay here, you'll be fine. Now let's read verses 17 and 18. All the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live, there shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, As my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so will my wrath be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You shall become an excretion, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. You shall see this place no more. So what you have there is basically God saying, No, you can't go. Uh, You're not allowed to go, pretty much. Um, And so God's offer to them is, if you'll stay here, then I'll relent from this disaster that you've already seen coming in Jerusalem. And now this next part, starting in chapter 43, is where we kind of see the intentions of the heart of the um, nation of Judah. And that's why we've named this Itching Ears, calling back to the teachings of Paul, where he talks about those people who have itching ears, um, setting up teachers for themselves that were teaching the things they wanted to hear. That's probably a phrase that you're very familiar with. Um, And we see that they were just kind of looking for the answer from God of, yeah, sure, you can go to Egypt. From their response, uh, we're going to start in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 43. So all these men, I think it's interesting, uh, this guy Johannes included that you mentioned was kind of the hero of last week. Uh, So it mentions two men. It mentions Azariah and Johannes. Then it says, and all of the insolent men. So all the men of Judah come to Jeremiah pretty much and say, you're telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch the son of Neriah has sent you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may kill us or take us into exile to Babylon. So here they are at the beginning saying, look, whatever God tells us to do, that's what we're going to do. Whether good or bad, that's what we're going to commit to do. And then here, Jeremiah gives them the answer from God. Now they're just totally rejecting the word of God. Totally rejecting what he has to say. Um, let's read verse 7. You'll see what they wind up doing. They came to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voices of the Lord, and they arrived at Tapanis. So they completely... Tapanis. Tapanis, yeah, however you want to pronounce uh, Some place in Egypt. Um, so God says, "Don't go to Egypt," and they decide to go anyway. So, so and don't forget that they 
basically kidnapped Jeremiah. Right, yeah. And Baruch, or Baruch. You know, I, I never thought of Baruch as being, you know, this influential. You know, I always thought of Jeremiah as the obvious leader in this group. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what's behind that. I wish I could really get into their thinking on their accusation that, you know, Baruch, he he put this into your head. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's Jeremiah's secretary. Now, he has yeah. been speaking on Jeremiah's behalf because Jeremiah was banned from the temple. So mm-hmm. maybe, maybe it's been so long since Jeremiah's spoken in the temple at this point through the reign of Jehoiakim and, and uh, th- those that followed that uh, Baruch uh, has risen in prominence. But, you know, I, Jeremiah's in his 60s now. Baruch yeah. is uh, probably a little bit younger than that. And so, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what that was, but I just found that really strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, Baruch has set you against us. Maybe yeah. they had just had an argument with him. There, there's something that happened that's not recorded. Yeah, you know that that gets in the way there. But they take Baruch, they take Jeremiah against their will. We're assuming because Jeremiah is saying, "Don't do this." They basically kidnap them. Then pretty much everybody goes: men, women, children, princesses, every person that the captain of the guard had left with Gedaliah. They took them to Egypt, and uh, now we're in a different setting. The first part of it. The itching years part, we're in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and now we're in Toponis. And so, the first part, in Jerusalem, we call that itching years, and Andrew explained, you know, what that term means. You know, Bible students think of it as people who like preaching as long as it's the kind of preaching they want to hear. Yeah. And they're looking for teachers who will scratch their ears. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jeremiah left them itching. Uh, he, because he didn't, he didn't fulfill their desire. Now, in chapter forty-three, we have this little section here where Jeremiah performs an object lesson, and we already discussed forty-three eight through thirteen in a previous lesson, episode three. So, if you haven't heard that, go back. We go over all the object lessons of the book of Jeremiah, or almost all of them, mm-hmm. as many as we had time to do. Not the best, uh, as I remember, not the best quality recording on that one. Yeah, that's right. That was but we did one. cover it, so we're going to use the time wisely and skip on down to chapter 44 for the deaf ears. And uh, verse 5 shows you why we chose to designate this section that way. Because verse 5 says, They did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. They did not listen. They did not incline their ears. In other words, they had deaf ears. Um, basically, verses 1 through 14 of this chapter is a reiteration of what Andrew explained as Jeremiah's prophecy over in chapter 42, that they should have stayed in Jerusalem. They should not have been afraid of Nebuchadnezzar, that he would have taken care of them and actually had compassion on them, that if they went to Egypt, he told them that sword and famine, the sword they feared from Nebuchadnezzar would follow them to Egypt, the famine they feared would follow them to Egypt, that there would be no survivors. Uh, that's pretty all-inclusive, except that in chapter 44, verse 14, he mentions that 
There'll be a few that make it back to Judah alive, but for the most part, no survivors. And so he reiterates all of that, and he says they're going to be, the verse, verse 12 uses this word, consumed. They're going to be consumed. And that's an interesting word, which literally means they will come to an end, or they will reach their intended fulfillment. And it has to do with the idea of God's punishment always accomplishing all that it intends to accomplish God doesn't go in, you know, like Joshua and the Israelites and leave some of the job undone. You know, whenever they went into the land of Canaan, they didn't wipe out all of the people as they were supposed to, but just most of them. Mm -hmm. And when God's punishment comes in and God decides that he's going to do it, they will meet their end. In other words, he will fulfill and complete their punishment to the very end. Now, the people have an argument that they want to make to Jeremiah. And it's wrapped up in idolatry, and I think it shows why the Lord did not want them to go to Egypt. Their hearts were, as John Calvin puts it, factories for idols. They just kept, you know, they could not get away from idol worship. And part of what God wants for this remnant of people that are left over after the uh, destruction of Jerusalem is a people who respect Him alone will not share his glory with another, who do not worship idols. And that is being stressed by Ezekiel over in Babylon. And Jeremiah is trying to stress that to the people in Jerusalem. And they're going over to Egypt, which is a land full of idolatry, as people remember from the book of Exodus. So the people make this argument to Jeremiah in verse 15 of chapter 44. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods... And all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the Queen of Heaven, and pour out drink offerings to her. Uh, This is probably the Egyptian goddess Asarte, or Canaanite goddess Asarte, um, there are some other guesses as to who the goddess is, the queen of heaven. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a goddess that the women are more into than the men. That's why they seem to be emphasized here. They say they're going to continue doing this, and here's the reason why. For then, verse 17, we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. And then they say this, But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven, whoever that is, and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and famine. So evidently they tried to do right. And what did it get them? Famine, sword, warfare, conquest. And then they go on and they they argue some more. They say, uh, and the women say in verse 19, when we made offerings to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, Was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? So they basically make three arguments. When we were worshiping idols, we had plenty of food. When we stopped worshiping idols, we were in a famine. And our husbands knew about this the whole time, so we haven't been, you know, rebellious towards our husbands. Mm -hmm. It seems to be something that goes along with the worship of this particular goddess Mm -hmm. uh, for them to mention it. Now, Jeremiah's response is very clear. Uh, Jeremiah says, verse 20, 
As for the offerings you offered in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? In other words, did he not know these offerings were going on? Did it not come into his mind? The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. So his argument is this. It is not because those gods are real that you had a period of time where you had plenty of food to eat and safety and prosperity. It is because of the patience of the Lord that you were able to go that long doing that. And by the time you had given that up, his patience had already run out. Yeah, It's the same argument you see in Second Peter chapter 3 where scoffers tell Peter, where is the time of his coming? All things continue as they always have since creation. After bringing up the flood, Peter says, the Lord is not slow concerning his promises, some count slowness, but is long-suffering or patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. That's Second Peter 3, 9. And the argument is basically, don't misinterpret the Lord's inactivity as his non-existence mm-hmm. or as other gods' true existence. Don't get that confused. The delay is due to God's goodness and his mercy and his patience, which ought to lead you to repentance, not further sin. So he makes that, and then he reiterates the doom in verse 24 through 28. And in the last two verses of our reading, he gives a sign. This is verses 29 and 30. He said, This shall be the sign to you, declares the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that's in Toponus or in Egypt, in order that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and sought his life. So you have there the itching ears where they come at Jeremiah with kind of a soft rebellion. Uh, Inquire of the Lord, and they're keeping their fingers crossed that he'll tell them what they want to hear. When Jeremiah doesn't, they kidnap him. They all go to Egypt like they wanted to anyway with their deceitful hearts. And now their ears are deaf to Jeremiah's pleas and to his preaching. Now since this is the last episode where we're talking about the storyline of Jeremiah, I want to jump over to chapter 52, the end of the book, and read a little postscript, which seems to be the, you know, come after these events in Egypt, about what's been going on with Jehoiachin. There is a period of like 26 years with no ruler in Judah. Meanwhile, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has been ruling in Babylon and taking care of the captives and everything. And Jehoiachin has been one of those captives. Nebuchadnezzar dies in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin. This is verse 31 of Jeremiah 52. And uh, evil Merodach succeeds Nebuchadnezzar. And that year that he became king, he graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. 
And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily need until the day of his death as long as he lived. So out of all of the kings that spanned the lifetime and ministry of Jeremiah, Josiah, uh, Jehoahaz, uh, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, only Jehoiachin lived a full life. And he ends his life here still in Babylon, but being cared for in his old age. I've been told that that is an honor that is often given to captive kings. And so this isn't something unusual that we're reading about here. But this is where the story ends. And so you have it. If you've listened to us from episode one, you now have the whole story of Jeremiah. Right. And uh, we'll talk about it more after the break. I'm sure that a lot of you have questions about what we just read, what we were talking about, what we did not talk about. And the foremost question on a lot of people's minds is probably, what happened to Jeremiah? You do have him speaking in chapter 44, but then we say, and that's the end of the story. And everybody wants to know, you know, did he escape? Uh, Did Nebuchadnezzar come in and wipe them out? Um, did this uh, sign of Hophra come to pass, uh, the pharaoh there? Was he uh, given over to the hands of his enemies? And uh, we know a little, and we know very little. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the short answer is we do not know how Jeremiah died or where he ended up. There are right. numerous traditions One of the most popular traditions is that after he gave this speech, these people stoned him to death right there in Tapanis. So he could have died in Egypt that way. There's another tradition that Jeremiah's bones were interred in Alexandria, which is in northern Egypt, which uh, was a major place for Christianity to flourish Uh, much, much later than this, and also a center for learning and a place where the uh, Jews in the dispersion fled to numerous times. So, I mean, who who knows? He might have been buried there. Uh, There's another tradition that he and Baruch made it back to Judah during Nebuchadnezzar's uh, campaign. Uh, Now, as for Hophra... He was deposed in... uh, Is that the right word? Deposed? Sounds good. It just came into my head. That sounds great. He was taken off his throne by a fellow Egyptian in, um, I think it was 570, after he had reigned for about 19 years. Two years after that, Nebuchadnezzar makes an infiltration into Egypt. So it was a sign of... Mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar coming in, bringing the sword in, the sword that they feared would come to them in Egypt. 
Because two years after Hophra was taken out of the way by his fellow Egyptian, Nebuchadnezzar came in, and maybe he slew Hophra at that time, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of lose track of Hophra like we do Jeremiah and Baruch. So what we have are traditions that could have developed through the years as people tried to tie up loose ends on their own, yeah. or maybe they're based in fact. We simply don't know. We'd really like to know what happened to Jeremiah, but the Bible does this all the time. It sticks to its message. Yeah. And this is not a biography of Jeremiah. This is a prophecy about God's will for his people. Yeah. And so it didn't take the time to tell us about the burial or funeral of Jeremiah. I will say, I don't think he was stoned after this message, because I'm thinking back to the very first chapter where God tells Jeremiah, they will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. And that's in verse 19, chapter 1. So I don't know that God would have just, you know, all right, well, that's all the prophecy I wanted you to do, so now I'm I'm out. You know, I'm not going to deliver you anymore because you've done what I need you to do. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. I mean, if... Would that prophecy have been proven wrong if Jeremiah had been stoned to death? I think so. You know, uh, it certainly wouldn't have that fence around him. Yeah. Um, I think in the people's minds, or maybe whoever came up with this tradition, there was some poetic justice in the people's minds to stoning him there because of the illustration that we skipped over in chapter 43 was of large stones that were embedded in the mortar and he said Nebuchadnezzar is going to set his throne on top of this and so maybe they were like you talk about stones we'll show you some stones you know but then like you said that would be a violation of the prophecy at the very beginning of the book which you know I think I think I'm with you I like the idea that he was he and Baruch made it back to Judah I know that's where he would have gone if he had had the opportunity. Yeah. Um, so, that's we just don't know. Yeah. But then, I mean, now I'm thinking of, you know, men like Peter in the New Testament, where, you know, Jesus gives them their word, Lo, I'm, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then most of those guys met their death at the hands of, you know, some kind of, form of persecution. Well, actually, he told Peter he was going to have some problems. Yeah, that's right. In John carry 21. They will carry you yeah. where you do not want to go. I think this is hands. a little more specific here, right? Because he says to them, or uh, God says to Jeremiah, specifically, the people will fight against you. If you read verse uh, the verse prior to this, verse 18, he says, I'm going to make you... Uh, a fortified city against the whole land, against the kings, the officials, the priests, and the people of the land. All of those people will fight against you, but they will not prevail. So I read that and I'm thinking, nobody in Judah is going to be able to kill or prevail against Jeremiah. Now, if we want to talk about does prevail mean physical life or, or, you know, that initial departure, that death, or are we talking about like salvation here, mm-hmm. uh, that's another issue altogether. Uh, I, I I think he, it was a promise of security, and we've seen it kept over and over and over again. Right. You know, it looks like Jeremiah's going to die. He's put in stocks. We've seen him put in prison. We've seen him thrown in a cistern, 
and he escapes inexplicably every time. Yeah. Why wouldn't he escape now that they're compromised in Egypt? It just and and he's lived this long. He has to be revered by the people, even if he's hated by the people. Yeah. So I I, I think that he probably he, made it to. I'd like to think he made it to Judah, but yeah. we don't know. Now, we do need to talk about this remnant concept mm-hmm. because uh, the term remnant is used eight or nine times in these three chapters. It's a major theme here, and it's a pretty big theme throughout the book of Judah. And in other books of the Bible, it's even a larger theme. I think Isaiah talks about it at greater length the righteous than remnant. Jeremiah. Yeah. Um, it is necessary due to the covenant God made with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 where he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That means that at least until that blessing comes, whatever the blessing is, Abraham's people have to survive in some shape or form. Right. The blessing has not yet come, yet we see God's people endangered. Just a small little group of people between these two huge empires, Babylon and Egypt. Mm-hmm. So Judah um, Jeremiah is talking about the remnant, and he's saying all these things that are troubling. Like this remnant will be totally wiped out. The remnant right. of the people who go into Egypt will there will not be anybody left. There will be no survivors. Mm-hmm. And if you're just reading this in a vacuum, you're scratching your head, thinking, "Oh, what's you know what about the promise to Abraham and what about God's word and mm-hmm. and all this talk about the remnant in Isaiah who preceded Jeremiah and then you know for me I was reading that and actually thinking about that and then I forgot there's a group of people in Babylon right and they're not tempted with the things that we're reading about here they're not over there toying with idolatry Ezekiel's over there preaching to them against idolatry and and cleansing them and and they are they are in a place where they are being purged of all of the sins that got them into that situation to begin with. Yeah. And a lot of people died, and this remnant, for the most part, that goes to Egypt will die. Some of them did return. Um, as I mentioned, chapter 44 says that some, I think it's verse 17 or somewhere around there, he mentions that some will make it back. Um, but for the most part, everybody that went to Egypt was going to die in Egypt. And so you have two remnants here. The poor remnant, poor in terms of spiritually poor, in Egypt, and then the purged remnant in Babylon. Right. And the ones in Babylon are the ones that come back eventually under the orders of Cyrus, king of Persia, and rebuild the temple, restore religion. You can listen to our episodes on Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, you want to hear about that whole process? We've been through that already. Yeah, uh, and that's really you know I'm glad we've done uh, this podcast on these different books specifically because that's really a um, gives you a nice I guess idea of the history of Israel in yeah. in order because I don't think many times we actually sit down to study their history the whole history in order you know we take it in chunks divided kingdom or united kingdom but really interesting to go all the way from where they came with Solomon to this because we covered a little bit of Solomon all the way up to here uh, you know talking about why they were in this predicament and then it it ties up nicely when you get to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther and that leads into the New Testament 
which we'll talk more about next week uh, as we close out our whole series on Jeremiah. Um, I got a couple things here for think though really quickly before we move on to apply. Um, the first thing that really struck me about these chapters was the very first thing that happens in 42. The people go to Jeremiah and say, uh, pray to God for us. Now, if you remember from our earlier episodes, three times God has told Jeremiah specifically not to pray for the people. He told them in Jeremiah 7, 16, 11, 14, and 14, 11, don't pray for the people because I'm not going to hear your prayer. I'm not going to listen to your plea on their behalf. And, you know, reading that, and we brought this up at the when we first encountered this uh, command from God, why would he command Jeremiah not to pray for the people? You know, when is it ever not appropriate to pray to God for somebody? And this reminds me of something that John wrote actually in first John five sixteen that uh yeah you talked about the other night in a sermon. Um let's just go ahead over there and read that in first John chapter five. Uh if you're driving, don't do that because it's gonna be uh hazardous to your health probably. First uh, John chapter five, though, and we're going to read verse. I lost my place in my notes. Verse sixteen: uh, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So it's kind of interesting that God here says, "Don't pray for these people," and then John kind of gives something similar, saying. Uh, I don't suggest that you pray for somebody that's involved in this sin that leads to death. Well, what exactly do we think this sin that leads to death might be? Can we get any perspective on what that sin that leads to death is from this scenario in Jeremiah? And I think we can get a little bit, maybe some principles to lay down for it at least. Well, you use the word, or they use the word, and you highlighted it, insolent, insolent yeah. men from 43.2. That's the kind of person that's committing the sin that leads to death in First John. And I think that's a sort of parallel to God's instructions, do not pray for them. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when God tells Jeremiah, do not pray for them, that's the same instruction that you have to the church in First John, do not pray for them. Yeah. But I don't think Jeremiah is violating that in what he does in chapter 42. Because that seems to be a simple inquiry. You know, not a, God, please don't destroy this people even though they're disobedient to you. It's not an intercessory prayer. It's a what should they do. Huh? It's a prayer is just what should they do. Yeah, exactly. Which he's been getting the whole time and already been telling them. It's an inquisition, not an intercession. And I think there are different kinds of prayer. And a lot of times we just have this big umbrella prayer. And we don't think about... You know, the fact that prayer serves a number of purposes. Right. And so those prohibitions to Jeremiah not to pray for the people because it won't do them any good, that's talking about intercession. But what he's doing here in verse four, or chapter 42 is inquisition or inquiry. He's, yeah. he's just asking on their behalf to give information which will further punish them, actually. Yeah. It's not, it's not going to intercede for them at all. Yeah, it's um, going to be worse for them than if he hadn't asked. I get well. Either way, the punishment would have come because that would have been God's will. Either way, but I do want to 
take notice here of verse 44, verse 17, along these same lines. I think this is the heart of the reason why uh, God is saying to Jeremiah, don't pray for them because I'm not going to listen. You know, and I think of what kind of state does a person have to be in to where a prayer for them doesn't do them any good? You know, what kind of, how bad does a person have to have it for, you know, we're not even instructed, hey, you know, don't even pray for forgiveness for them. Because that sounds really harsh. Uh, But I think this explains a lot. Verse 17, this is, uh, well, let's just go ahead and back up to verse 16. This is what the people, the great assembly, say back to Jeremiah after he gives them the punishment that's coming for idolatry. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed. Make offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And I think the idea here is absolute open rebellion and defiance of God. You know, which is really the same problem that Satan has when you think about it. Um, His problem is open defiance and rebellion, thinking he has a better way to do things than God does. Mm -hmm. And here you have the same problem with Israel. Look, they even recognize God as God. They say, we're not going to believe what you said to us in the name of the Lord. We're going to do everything we said we would do. We're going to keep making offerings to the Queen of Heaven, whoever this was. Mm -hmm. Um, And we got a little bit on that, but uh, we're just going to keep doing it. We don't care because, you know what? We were taken care of when we made offerings to this queen of heaven. And now and they're we're ma- not. And they're making offering. this after their city has been totally destroyed. Yeah. And they're contemplating or... Yeah, by this point, they've already, they're already over in Egypt. Mm-hmm. So they're standing in a foreign land arguing that it worked out well for them to worship idols. Yeah. After all this had been going... So you kind of understand why these particular people was it providential that got that certain ones were taken into captivity yeah. and certain ones were left behind? I I think so. I think there's certain individuals in whom idolatry was so ingrained that God just made sure they didn't go to Babylon. Mm-hmm. Babylon yeah. was the place to be, you know. And we talked about the deserters of the turncoats who went ahead of the conquest and join Babylon, you know, uh, those those are people who were listening to Jeremiah's prophecies. Yeah. So these were naturally, and I'm really disappointed in Johanan because last episode I had high hopes for this guy. He had, yeah. He'd come in and try to stop the assassination of Gedaliah, but it sounds like he's a pragmatist. He's just going to do whatever's practically effective in his mind. He's not somebody who follows the will of God. Yeah. He's more political than that. It is interesting that he was wanting to stick with Babylon and then instead of like going to Babylon and trying to explain to them what happened, he just flees from Egypt. He he only wanted to stay with them out of fear. Yeah. He he you know, and then after Gedaliah was assassinated, his fear told him, You're gonna get you're gonna get punished for this, so you have no choice but to run to Egypt now. Yeah. Um, you know, God's word was saying, no, as strange as it may sound, you're not going to be punished. Yeah. But um, he just couldn't believe that because he was a coward. 
Yeah, uh, we got a few minutes left for this section. Um, and I want to throw this one in here. Uh, if you're interested in this kind of thing, you'll want to listen to it. If not, you'll probably just want to hit uh, fast forward to the next section. Uh, but this Queen of Heaven, who exactly it was. Uh, like you mentioned in the other in the earlier section, there's some speculation on who it is. And does it really matter who it is? No. Uh, what matters is the fact that they're offering sacrifices to a false god. But, you know, for those who think it's interesting uh, to think about these sort of things, if you're interested, interested in the history and the culture of the time period, uh, this Queen of Heaven could have been several different goddesses. Um and rather than dive into everybody who we think it could have been, I think, Drew, I'll just go ahead and cut to the chase here. Uh, chapter 17 and verse 2. Jeremiah mentions um, a certain goddess by name, and she's mentioned by name uh, many times in the Old Testament. And what you find with a lot of these idols is they have different names according to what nation you're talking about, uh, what group of people or what language, this and that and the other. Um, but in chapter 17 of verse 2, he mentions uh, altars to the Asherim, or the Asherim. And those are statues of this god, uh, goddess, rather, Asherah. Uh, also called, called, was it Astarte? Yeah, I or think, Astart. I think it's There's a lot of different Astarte. spellings uh, of that same goddess. She's a fertility goddess. Um, Across pretty much across the board, she's a fertility goddess. Uh, there's statues of her um, that are still remaining to this day. Uh, but here's here's where I was a little confused because I was reading this and I was thinking, okay, Queen of Heaven. Uh, what I thought of instantly was Isis, uh, the goddess Isis. And now when people hear Isis, they're thinking of the uh, the terrorist group um, that's been in the news here for I guess about the last year or so. Um, but Egypt had a kind of their queen goddess, really, was Isis. And she was, in fact, called in some of their writings Queen of the Heavens, uh, or the Queen of Heaven, capital Q, capital H, just like is mentioned here. Um, so I was thinking it was probably going to be Isis. And then you read in uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, and you know, well, we looked this up a while ago, I didn't even write it down. My memory is in chapter 7. Uh, Jeremiah mentions seven eighteen queen of heaven. Okay, verse eighteen. He brings up a queen of heaven. Uh, it's very similar language to what we read in forty four. Um, Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the water, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. And evidently, they make these cakes. There's some line, I think it's in Isaiah, woe to those who make raisin cakes or something like that. Oh, it's yeah. just kind of strange if, you don't, if you're not familiar with this form of idol worship. But, yeah. uh, you know, what we were reading here in chapter 44, they stamped the image. If they had a mold or something of the right. image of this goddess that they put on the cakes. Mm-hmm. So that when you ate the cake, you would, you would see her and think yeah. of her and... It was a form of worship to eat this food. Yeah, and that was very common in worship to Egyptian goddesses as well. Uh, And then here's where it's a little technical and boring maybe for some, but uh, Isis is actually very closely associated with Asherah. 
or at least from what I've found, uh, because Asherah is kind of attributed to this Greek uh, goddess Hathor, who is very closely related to Isis, and in fact, in their depictions, it's really hard to tell um, who is who, because they are so similar. So there's a really strong connection between Asherah and Isis. Um, Does it really matter which goddess it is? No, because the practices are similar for all these idols. The important thing is um, that these that the people were betraying God's trust, betraying Him in their relationship, and were going after other gods. We're back, and uh, we want to go over some practical applications before we end this episode. There, there are quite a few, actually, if you start looking for them. And the most obvious one, and really the first one that pops up, is that we need to read the Word of God with an open heart. You have these people in chapter 42, as it begins, coming to Jeremiah saying, Pray to us, and as we said in the last section of the episode, they're not asking for intercessory prayer, but... They're wanting an inquiry. You know, we need to know, I think, how did they put it, uh, that that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. We're trying to make a decision. They'd really already made it in their hearts, but they were putting forth the pretense of wanting to know what the Word of God was. Right. But they didn't have an open heart in doing it because whenever Jeremiah came back, came to them ten days later with the Word of the Lord, they said, eh, we're not going to do that. That's those itching ears. They were looking for a teacher who would tell them what they wanted to hear. They weren't looking for the Word of God. But we've got to read the Word of God with an open heart. Um, it's not always going to tell us what we want to hear. Right. Um, I think this is something that's very tempting for us, and you see it in our, you know, our culture in America today. You know, a lot of folks talk about how their Christianity is being marginalized and. But Christianity is extremely popular uh, in America. And, you know, part of that, a big branch, I guess, of the Christianity that's popular in America, uh, I think, fails to do what you're talking about doing. And I don't want to sound all judgy or 
like I've got. Well, that's these, part of that Christian brand. It's not to sound judgy. Yeah, I guess so. But the thing is, you know, I'm thinking specifically of um, a lady got up. Was it Olstein's wife or somehow related to Joe Olstein? Is it O or O? O O S. Just O. There's no yeah, L. Osteen. No. Okay. So Osteen. I thought it was Olstein. Um, oh, I, yeah, her viral video. Yeah, about, talking about worship, like God, or no, 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 God just wants us to be happy. Yeah, Whatever that's right. we want to do, God wants us to be happy. God wants uses, everybody to be happy. Yeah. She uses Bible for that. Uh, you know, well, parts of Bible. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. She uses parts of Bible, and she the parts of Bible that she uses, she uses um, wrong. She uses incorrectly, I guess. We have to be willing when we read God's word to take it for what it actually means and not for what we want it to mean. You know, it's very popular in passages that people say, oh, well, that's just cultural. Or, um, oh, well, you know, mm-hmm. our society doesn't agree with that now. So, you know, that might be what Paul said, but that's not what we have to live by. Or they'll um, just totally reinterpret it. I know it says this. But that's not what it means. Yeah, people do it that. It doesn't with, mean what it says. Yeah. You know, uh, we do that with passages, or I say we, speaking of the Christian yeah, community as a whole. Yeah. Uh, you know, do that with passages like um, baptism. Um, you know, some folks are trying to, for whatever reason, trying to get out of this idea that baptism is necessary. Uh, so they'll go to passages, um, you know, that we read, and like in Acts 2.38, goodness gracious, uh there are there have been books written on the meaning of a Greek preposition, uh, whether does it mean for remission of sins or into remission of sins. Uh, right. A huge debate on all that. Just people, uh, just for whatever reason, trying to find things that fit their own ideas with these um, itching ears, rather than taking, you know, what God's word has to say. Uh, for what it truly means. And one passage I just want to kind of use here as an example of, you know, Romans 8, uh, I believe it's verse 28. No, I'm thinking of the end. Uh, All things work out together for good for those who love the Lord. That's Romans 8, 28. It is 28. Okay. Um, Yeah, it is. There it is. Uh, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Um, and I think we want to make that, a lot of folks want to make this be, you know, everything's going to be okay, nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. And then the minute something bad happens to you, you decide that, well, maybe God's not trustworthy. And that's exactly the problem that Israel had here. You know, they said, well, give us the word of God. Okay, here's the word of God. Oh, well, no, that's not, I, I'm not going to trust that. That must not be the word of God. So the word of God must be something else. It's not coming from Jeremiah. And I think people do that with Scripture. You know, they'll read a passage like Romans eight twenty eight. nothing bad's going to happen to me. Um, someone dies, you get an illness, you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, whatever it is. Well, this must not be the Word of God because it's lied to me. Well, maybe we need to stop and rethink our interpretation of what a passage like this means. You know, uh, and I'm just using this as an example. There's plenty of them out there. Uh, but, you know, to read this and to understand it yourself as this means I'm never going to have any problems... Uh, maybe to look at it at the light of, you know, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Um, ultimately, uh, all things will work together for good. You know, uh, our existence on earth is, you know, a very tiny piece of the puzzle compared to our eternal existence. 
Um, and certainly in the grand scheme of things, all things work will work out together for good. Uh, they might not seem like it in the days or months that you're going through troublesome times, uh, but all those things will work out together for good ultimately uh, with the idea towards salvation, I think. Um, but I just kind of use that as, a, as an example. And I know that gets yeah. us off topic from here, but just to use that as an example to show that we need to be reading God's Word fairly. Then on top of that, uh, while we're still on this idea of open-minded, uh, we need to be able to pray fairly, too. Not only do we need to read fairly, but we need to be able to pray fairly, too. These people were not praying fairly, I don't think. Well, they didn't even pray. They asked Jeremiah to pray. But right. I, yeah. you can tell this isn't an honest... It's not they're these not people. honest people. Yeah, they're not honestly seeking the Word of God. They're not believers. You yeah. know, God is just in a pantheon of Canaanite gods, fertility gods. He's just one of many. And uh, if they can get him on their side, that's great. They'll they'll include him. Yeah, and then but, Jeremiah uh, leaves him alone. Honest. Yeah. Um, you know, going along with, with the first couple of lessons here is another one. And that is that God's Word is often counterintuitive. It often tells us exactly the opposite of what we were expecting to hear. But it only does that if you're going into it open-minded and getting the context and, and reading it and trying to challenge your preconceptions. It, it's often going to tell you something totally different, and that can be exciting and that can be terrifying sometimes. Right. I um, think of the Beatitudes kind of first... And foremost, when I think of oh, stuff yeah. like that, like yeah, that's exactly a good example. It's basically, you know, happy are those who you think are unhappy. <laughs> right, blessed are the meek; they shall inherit the earth. How yeah. is that? Yeah. Um, I also saw a touch of something that you read a lot in John, and that is that God's people are to be in the world, but not of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jeremiah or the Lord through Jeremiah is wanting the people to stay where they are to you know he's he he has already told the captives in a letter to build houses for themselves and pray for the people and um you know that are have taken you captive pray for them and uh, their welfare is wrapped up together with your welfare and then his advice here in chapter 42 is um you know do not fear the king of babylon don't fear him. I'm with you to save him. I grant you mercy and let you remain in your own land. And they say, we will not remain in this land. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the opposite of what he wanted. He wanted them to stay where they are. Now, that's not saying that you shouldn't be a missionary. You know, please don't read yeah. this. What I'm saying is we need to be a part of the society we have chosen to live in and not form convents or withdraw from society so to be absolutely uh, pure as we can be, that's not the idea you know, behind Christianity. We're supposed to be involved in society without becoming society. And uh, we've got to, there, there's a kind mm-hmm. of a balancing act there, but yeah. it's very important. Just like Jerusalem was supposed to be, you know, they were supposed to be that city set on a hill, uh, a light to the nations, that you have that exact, that exact imagery um, again, when Jesus in Matthew 5 brings it up right after the Beatitudes, you know, now we are the city set on a hill. Uh, we should be the light of the world. And you can't really be a light if you remove yourself 
from uh, the world. You know, does that make any sense? Yeah. If you're trying to yeah, illuminate uh, the place where you are, if you're trying to show people he, basically the works of God, who God is, what he does, how to follow him, you can't do that if you take yourself away from people. Well, light, light is a perfect image because... You can't be a light if you remove yourself from the world, like you said. Mm. And you can't be a light if you look exactly like the world. Right. Because, you know, a light is meant to shine in the darkness. Yeah. So it's it's perfect for this concept. I don't know if I've ever tied those two ideas together, although I've preached on it a lot about being in the world, not of the world, and I preach a lot about light. It's like being a light in a dark place, I guess. Yeah, you know, light is meant to illuminate the darkness, yeah. But it's like stars, you know, You know, I, t- I, t- I had to tell my kids one time, it blew their minds, that the stars are out all the time. You just can't see them during the daytime yeah. because of the light of the sun. And they had this idea that the stars disappeared or went around the other side of the earth or something. Yeah. But they're always there, and it's like our light. If we're just shining it around in church and mm. turning it off as soon as we go outside, or we... Refuse. We withdraw. We refuse to participate in society and engage society. Then nobody's ever going to see the light because yeah. the light is only seen in the sharp relief given to it by the darkness. Right. We get to another thing that I find really interesting. The next two lessons go together. Uh, lesson number four, by my count, is experience is subjective. So this gets into the argument that's made in chapter forty-four by the women who say. You know, when we were worshiping the goddess, everything was going great. We had plenty of food on our tables, and nobody was hurting us. And then we stopped worshiping the goddess, and all of a sudden, everything gets bad. Yeah. Is that really true, or is that the way they interpreted their experience? Their experience was very subjective. They chose to ignore those nights when they didn't have any food on the table and highlight the nights when they had plenty of food. Their memories were selective on this. I just don't believe it for a minute that they were just, when they were totally rebellious to God, everything was great. And then when they were obedient to God, everything just got exponentially worse. Yeah. That's, that's what experience is, though. And you hear a lot of people say, you know, I don't care what the Bible says. I feel this way. Or I don't care what the church is telling me. I, you know, I love this person, so I should be with this person. Or right. this makes me happy, so I'm going to keep doing it. That's leaning on your experience, and experience mm-hmm. is very subjective. The same experience for two different people can mean two different things. Right. Uh, I got two quick things out of that point. No, we're running out of time. It reminds me of Jeremiah 17, where um, I think it's the exact point. I think it's where you're going with this, too. Uh, but... Uh, the Lord says to the people, Cursed is a man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength. You go to verse 9, it says, this is Jeremiah 17, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yeah. Um, really interesting phrase, the heart is deceitful. And you were talking about people you know, basing truth off of their feelings, uh, such as, you know, well, I feel it to be this way, is this the way I'm going to do it, or I feel like I need to be with a certain person. You know, even though all the evidence might stack up and say, well, you probably shouldn't. Uh, a really good illustration, actually, that comes from, a lot of people probably recognize, actually comes from Muscle and the Shovel, um, is uh, just kind of to show how feelings are not something to bank on for truth. Imagine somebody called you and said, you're on vacation. Uh, imagine your friend called you and says, hey, 
have some bad news for you. Your house, your house burnt down last night. Uh, you're going to feel awful. You're going to feel horrible. You know, your heart is going to tell you that things are bad. Now, let's say the next night, your friend calls you back and says, hey, that was actually your neighbor's house, not your house. My mistake. I'm sorry. Well, you hang up the phone. Your house is still standing there. But last night, you knew in your heart that it was burnt down. And you felt that it was burnt down. Your heart was telling you that that house was not there. In reality, it really was. And I think that just goes to show you that your, you know, your emotions, maybe your feelings aren't as reliable as we would like to think they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's... Well, they're so, they're so powerful, though. They, they just yeah. grab hold of you. It's hard not to listen to them. Um, but the other side of that is, while our experiences are subjective... Uh, God's word is objective. Right. So, like, you know, Jeremiah is saying, you know, whatever your experience was, this is the word of God. Mm-hmm. You know, I I understand that you feel this way. That doesn't matter. Here's what the word of God says. Yeah. And that applied to everybody, regardless of what might have worked for them or didn't work for them. Uh, so... You know, let me get this last one in here, and that is that God purges His people. Um, this is where, you know, you talked a while ago about some people have the mistaken idea that as Christians, nothing bad ever happens to them. Mm-hmm. And we've also talked about the counterintuitiveness of God's Word, and the Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth, and stuff like that. And this this is the reason why bad things happen to good people. God disciplines his people and purges mm-hmm. them. And how many New Testament passages talk about how the um the trying of your faith produces steadfastness, James one, two and three. Yeah. Or uh, you know, you'll be uh purged as with fire. The tested genuineness of your faith will come out more precious than gold. First Peter chapter one, verse six and seven are or even Job's statement that when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job twenty three verse ten. There, there are so many passages like that. The promise discipline, you know, in Hebrews twelve. The writer says, you know, a father disciplines his child. Will God not discipline his children? Mm-hmm. But all discipline, while painful for a moment, yields righteousness. You know, it makes us right. better. And that's what's happening here in this in this passage is God is disciplining His people and they are rejecting it. Yep. If they accept it as a gift from Him, they will live and, and grow better. And the people in Babylon are learning that. Yep. But the captives in Egypt are going to be... They're going going—they're going to disappear simply because they will not they can't accept learn. the discipline of the Lord. They have deaf ears. Well, I think that pretty much rip, wraps us up. Uh, and rips us up. Rips, rips us, wraps us up. up yeah. Rips us up. Uh, rip, wrap, wrap them. Uh, that's going to end us for today, I guess. Uh, we've hit the hour mark on the recording here. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we really hope you have been enjoying Jeremiah so far. Uh, now that we've gotten to the close of really the narrative, next week we'll come back and uh, we'll tie it up and we'll spend a little bit of time just kind of talking we've done this with the other books uh, we'll just spend a little bit of time in our last section talking about what we thought of the book just kind of our opinions um, and you feel free to share those as well if you would like to uh, you can find us on the internet uh, our website is the66.net 66 is number 
Uh, all our episodes are up there, and you can leave us comment on any of them. You can find us on Facebook now, The 66 Podcast. Again, 66 is a number. Um, also on Twitter, uh, at The 66 Podcast. We didn't get real creative with changing up our names for the different social media sites. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to confuse you. Yeah, so 66 is a number and everything. If you search The 66 Podcast, uh, 66 being a number, you'll find us. Uh, find us on iTunes and leave us a review, please. Uh, make it easier for others to find us. If you like what we're doing, um, if you want to support the idea, get on. Leave us a review. Uh, and that'll move us up in the standing so people can find us a little bit more easily. You can email us. Uh, you can email me at akingsley at arclc.com. You can email Drew at dkaiser at arclc.com. And uh, thanks for listening, and we will see you on our final Jeremiah episode next week.